This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballaman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Hi, this is Mike Ballaman, and this is the London FinTech Podcast, episode 196, brought to you in association with Smart and theenlistedboard.com, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Bents Yendushak, co-founder of Sion, to talk about preventing online fraud, a super important topic which, amazingly, we haven't covered before. Sion provide tools to help online businesses prevent fraud, with some 5,000 customers at present. Bents and his co-founder, Tamash Kadar, have a classic origin story as university buddies with an interest in crypto whose first project together, a crypto exchange for Central and Eastern Europe, as perhaps one might expect with the wilder segments of fintech, was the subject of one or two fraudulent attacks, or maybe more. They did the logical thing, which was to try outsourcing or buying in solutions and so forth, but before long decided they could do better themselves. And it sounds like they are. Despite only founding in 2018, Sion already have offices in Budapest, London, Austin, and Jakarta. Fraud prevention was naturally a topic I was very keen on doing in the early days of fintech, when it was particularly an issue for P2Ps. In those days, to be a fintech, you had to do way more things yourself than simply buy in components or outsource components. And not that long before the start of fintech, you even had to buy yourself a bunch of hardware servers and stick them in a nice room. Unsurprisingly, however, the P2Ps at the time were not keen to come on the show and talk about which frauds were the most successful, for obvious reasons, and their attempts to stop them. Anyway, a few years later, and any savvy new fintech starting today wouldn't dream of doing everything itself, for example, AML, KYC, or fraud prevention and so forth, but would much rather outsource those components to specialists. And thus, as Sion provide tools to help online businesses prevent fraud, or more precisely, financial fraud, I assume they have found a way to word the how to stop fraud thing without that being able to be flipped on its head into a how to get through our fraud walls and find the vulnerabilities. Plenty to talk about, so let's get on the show. Good morning, Bents. Thank you for joining me on the show today. Hello, Michael. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So... In terms of here, you guys have many possible here's spread around the world. Which here are you here in right now? And in terms of the sort of pros and cons of this sort of um, stage we're at in the, the coronavirus insanity, are you in a, a good one or, or, or a bad one? Absolutely. I'm, I'm in our London office currently and, and it's definitely a good one because Generally, I feel like everything, life is, life is pretty normal uh, here. You know, you can sit in pubs and restaurants and just had a, a nice dinner last night with my co-founder. So I'm, I'm in London right now, but generally I sit out of Budapest. I'm flying back on Friday morning, actually. And I come out and visit every month or so for a week. And as you've been in London for a little bit, did you notice any particular increase in busyness in London when the government said, oh, forget it, or had loads of companies not actually paid much attention to the government before December? Uh, good question. I mean, I, I feel like when I was here in December, it was very busy outside, but I, I would say that's, that was due to 
probably the you know the the holidays coming up and people doing their last minute shopping and it was super busy on the streets now i feel it's a bit more a uh, bit more quiet which i actually prefer better when i'm walking home or I'm, i take a I, tr i take a stroll back to my hotel i can uh, get back without um, fighting tourists but uh, yeah that's that's just my general sense it's a bit quiet now uh, don't know how you feel about it i mean you're based out of here so so you should have a better sense as I mentioned before, I was quite surprised last year because, roughly speaking, in terms of my experience of London, August it was pretty dead. I mean, I think I went to the dentist and they were complaining that nothing was going on and sandwich shops are empty and, and all this kind of stuff. But then, in terms of tipping points, which seemed to occur for totally unpredictable random reasons, by late September it was totally normal. And I went to sort of several company drinks and, and all that thing in the evening and, and everyone was sort of chugging back the booze. Not one person wore a mask and everyone was shaking hands as if nothing had ever happened. So there was suddenly this huge vault fast. I didn't go much in December. I didn't like December anyway because it's all sort of packed out with sort of Christmas shopping and all that kind of stuff. And I haven't been in yet in, in January. But the, the, the challenge I find from my side in terms of February, and I'm sure it's a challenge for the companies as such and, and, and having offices around the world, is Swiss Cheese Diary in February because you speak to company A and oh yeah we do Monday, Wednesdays and Fridays, can't do Thursday. You speak to company B, oh we do Tuesday to Thursdays and, and all this kind of stuff. And, and I assume that this is a kind of transitional thing rather than that a number of people have decided it's a human right to sort of stay at home when they want to rather than come into the into the office. So I don't know how um, Sion are handling this around their offices. Have you got sort of like you're all in Tuesday to Thursday thing from now on or, you know, just do what you want when you want kind of thing? Yeah, so we're, we're 170 full-time employees now. So as you can imagine, it is challenging to have a, a policy in place that is favorable for everyone. Generally speaking, we have three days in office, two days home office. In Budapest, where I, where I normally sit out of, we have over 140 employees. So 90% of our staff sits out of there. And uh, what we had implemented was uh, every Monday morning, we do testing, mandatory testing. So we test over 100 employees. Sometimes there's positives, then we send the whole team home. But luckily, it, it hasn't affected our course of work, right? So, I mean, I feel like our general um, age, uh, average age is around 30 years uh, of our staff. So, I mean, everybody that has been COVID positive has had it very... Mildly, yeah, yeah. At that kind of age. At that kind of age, without going on to the world's most tedious topic. From what I've seen, uh, as somebody who wore a wrist hat um, back in the day, in the last millennium, um, uh, one's probably more at risk from the uh, side effects of the vaccine, myocarditis or dysmenorrhea, amongst other uh, not ideal things, uh, than one is from the, the thing oneself. So, uh, yeah, so we're going to have this sort of transitional uh, issue for all of us as, as time goes, goes by, and we'll see what happens with that. Now, talking about Budapest, which I had never been to, it's, the, it's one crazy omission, actually. I don't, don't know how I managed to avoid it, actually. As I mentioned your origin story in the introduction, but maybe you want to give us a, a little more colour on uh, how come you're here today, uh, suddenly running 170 people, quotes suddenly, suddenly running 170 people in four countries uh, spanning the globe, on which empire probably the sun never sets actually off the top of my head, or it might slightly set between uh, Austin and, and Jakarta, I can't quite visualise that one. It's been a wild ride, so Tamash and myself, we were good university friends, and we were actually building a crypto exchange back in the days, and after facing credit card uh, fraud on our own skin, we quickly realized how massive of an issue it must be for multiple online businesses. 
And all of these fraud prevention providers back then were focused on enterprise sales. They weren't selling the way we would have been liked uh, to be sold to. So we would have had to sit through discovery calls and sales calls to get our hands on the product. We were faced, we were faced with complex pricing structures and we said, okay, let's build our own tool in-house because this is clearly not what we're looking for. Fast forward a couple of years, here we are. Uh, our ethos is to democratize fraud fighting, meaning we want to make our solution available to as many fraud and risk managers out there in the simplest form possible. So just like you would consume Netflix or Spotify, which is an on-demand service and you can get your hands on their, on their services in a couple of clicks and minutes, we want to replicate that user journey. So that's, that's what we're working towards and that's, that's what we've been, uh, that's what's keeping us alive with uh, Tamash. Now, uh, it is a sudden change. You mentioned, you know, that growth to 170. Actually, a year ago, just a year ago, um, to date, we were 50 uh, heads and now we're 170. So that was a, over a 12-month period. That was over 100 um, full-time employees and new team members that joined our, our team, which has been a massive growth. Before that, we were just Budapest and, and London split. Now, as you mentioned, we have Jakarta and Austin. Out of Jakarta, we have seven heads. And out of Austin, we have four heads, four or five heads maybe at the moment. We constantly have new uh, joiners on a bi-weekly basis. And now we also have onboarded senior account executives, East Coast and West Coast, and one out of Singapore as well. So we're diversifying, we're, we're opening up uh, over new locations around the globe, and we have customers um, from the APAC region to the LATAM region. We're also making a footprint now in North America, which is something new for us because we haven't been focusing on the North American market over the past couple of years. Pretty much over the last 12 months is when we set foot there and started seeing a revenue stream. So it's an amazing journey, a wild ride, and looking forward to you know uh, the next 12 months ahead of us. Yes, we had an episode last year with Currency Cloud, who I think sold themselves, I don't know, a billion or two or three billion or, or, or something like that to someone like Visa can't quite remember. Too much to eat and to drink over Christmas and too few neurons left after all that. And uh, they were talking about the, the challenges from uh, founder management perspective of this sort of scaling period. And in particular, when you no longer know everybody in the company, you know, certain, at the beginning, you know them all and you've interviewed them all. And th- there is this sort of phase change in, in how one has to manage a company. You're no longer managing the thing, but you won't be managing people who are managing people. And after all, people who are managing people are managing people. And in terms of this exponential growth, obviously, I spend more time speaking to the successful and the not successful. I think if you've got some sort of global thing like you guys are doing, then either you get the exponential growth for some period of time or you don't really go anywhere because the market is naturally oligopolizing in that, for the sake of argument, in 10 years' time. We won't need 10,000 fraud firms around the world. There will be a, quite a small number who have got large chunks of the market. So fraud. Fraud can, in the broadest sense, mean many things. I mean, when we were talking about pod prep, I gave the example of my wine merchant uh, pointing out that one should never buy expensive wines on Amazon because the chances are quite high that it's kind of Chateau Planck in a, in a bottle with a sort of Chateau Margot sticker on the front or something like that. So in the world that we live in, in this fallen uh, world, this world of samsara, human beings are sort of sadly all too keen to rip off their fellow member of the human race. So that's very broad as a whole. But just looking at the financial fraud, which I assume that the, the area that you're focusing on, if one was to give a, a topology of 
financial fraud, you know, what it was, where it's come from, what the main sort of one, two, three, fifty-seven categories of, of financial fraud are, how would you outline it to somebody who hasn't spent their life with their head under the, the bonnet of the car called financial fraud control? Going back in time, I think probably online fraud, financial fraud, must have been an issue ever since we saw the first checkout button online, right? Because that's just the way human nature works. You're always going to have bad actors thinking about ways of trying to you know, do dishonest activity. And doing dishonest activity online, I actually, uh, back in the day, I put a lot of research into the psychology of fraudsters. And the, the whole sense of anonymity of it, right? You're sitting behind a screen. You may not even necessarily know who your victim is. It's not like snatching a purse on the street where you see somebody suffer afterwards and you have to deal with that, that trauma if, if you have any sense of empathy. But when you're doing online fraud, you're essentially sitting behind a screen and it's really easy to rationalize the whole concept of it, right? Because you may be defrauding a, a, a large corporation like Amazon, whereas you're paying with credit card information that was stolen and you're saying, oh, well, you know, it's... Uh, they, they can just write it off. They're making enough profits on, on its own. Probably the person that, that, uh, that is suffering, the, the person's details that I'm using, they'll be covered by insurance or the bank is going to pretty much push back the money to them and they'll be covered and the merchant is going to be at loss. So there's very many ways in order to sort of idealize the whole concept from a fraudster's perspective. And hence the reason why fraud has been an issue ever since the time that payments have been going online. Now, nevertheless, with COVID, we do see an acceleration in digitalization. You know, my, an anecdote that I like to use is my grandmother is now buying her groceries online. Meanwhile, back in the days in the, when, when Hungary was part of the Soviet Union, she had to stand in line for bread and bananas. It's a shop which probably didn't have bread or bananas every other week. Anyway, exactly. The and now she, on her iPad, she's ordering her groceries online. Now she clearly doesn't know, you know, what online fraud is to a great extent. She's not necessarily as aware as I, myself, an everyday consumer should be aware. And um, I think there should be a lot of awareness uh, as more and more people are included in the world of online payments and online commerce. There should be more and more awareness being spread around um, around online fraud and what identity fraud could be, what payment fraud could be, you know, what they can do with your data. And uh, I, I specifically recall an article that in the UK, online fraud has been considered a national security threat, I believe, over the past year. So, uh, yeah, we are seeing initiatives. The pandemic has been an accelerant. Online fraud has been around ever since online payments have been around and fraud in itself ever since humanity has been around. So it's, it's a very interesting topic. Yes, and I'm sure it's quite a complex one. I mean, you mentioned an interesting point there, which is how does the average citizen get to know how best to handle themselves to minimise the chance of fraud online or offline? I mean, you know, an example of someone I know who lives in the country has got a, a, um, a kind of letterbox, an American letterbox outside their the fence around their place. And um, they were subject to somebody stealing their identity and borrowing money in their name and, and stuff like that, simply because this person had actually nicked some relevant documents from the, the letterbox, gone past it in the countryside, nobody would notice. There's no other 
house nearby. So, you know, there's a, a simple example that nobody told this person when they were young, if you have a letterbox outside a place, if you ever get fortunate enough to buy one big enough to have a fence, then do put a lock on it. Simple, simple example. And in the same way, when your grandmother was young, her parents never said to her, oh, and when you grow up, make sure that if you're doing something online with a, a place you don't trust, you use a sort of whatever Revolut's got them now, I forgot what they're called, virtual card or some, something like that. It, it was never something that parents passed on to children. And most of the really essential stuff we learn in life comes at a very early age from parents or from schools. I mean, you know, your parents hopefully yelled at you the first time you tried to walk into the road and, and therefore forevermore you've got this sort of visceral reaction against stepping into the, the road because you remember being yelled at at the age of two or three or, or, or something like that. So I'm not quite sure how people, given that more and more people are online, just starting from this angle rather than the merchants or the, the customers or the fintechs, or whatever, uh, I'm not sure how they're finding out about it. I mean, I don't get much education, shall we say, from I don't know the, the banks I've got accounts with or where I've got cards. Uh, you know, they just love sending me, oh, here's an update to the terms and conditions, 74-page PDF attached. Oh, fuck, I'm not reading that, nor, nor does anybody else. And they, they know it. It's just legalistic stuff. So what do you think on this front? can be done or could be done or should be done in terms of educating people just for them to do whatever it takes to minimise the chance of the fraud from their side of the fence uh, before we come on to talk about, well, actually, if you're a, if you're a merchant, uh, how, how you reduce it from your side of the fence. I do think this should be, you know, in, uh, in today's world, this should be just considered basic knowledge. Now, that's easier said than done, right? Because that's the question. How does it become basic knowledge? I would like to see more push from a, well, not per se legislature perspective, but definitely building awareness, pushing it onto the population. I don't have concrete ideas, but from, from a government perspective, you know, like, like saying that online fraud is a national security threat, I think that's already a good direction. On the other hand, um, merchants should be doing a, a good job of protecting their customers, right? So. It's one thing that the customer should, it should be basic knowledge and they should be aware. But on the other hand, merchants should be doing everything in their hands possible that they can protect their buyers, customers and service users. And so I think that's the second aspect of it. Whereas you have amazing stacks and tools on hand in order to be able to do that. So merchants should be living up to it and they should be planning their their fraud checks in a relevant manner. Because at the end of the day, it's not only about protecting your own profits, it's also about protecting your, your credibility, protecting your buyers, your users, and so on. Yes, I'm just taking the box on the, on the former, what can consumers do? I think one of the challenges is that uh, it is evolving, um, and, and although increasing internetization has, has increased the amount of fraud, um, it also does give you some things uh, to help. So one of my daughters a couple of years ago uh, had a ping notification on her phone of expenditure and somebody had bought her pizza in Amsterdam with her, her Monzo card. Uh, she wasn't in Amsterdam. So at least she found out about that. You know, if, if somebody had frauded via my credit card where six weeks later, in old school way, I, st I get a bill and a bunch of transaction codes I don't recognise, it might sort of s slip through. So the technology itself and, uh, and the providers of payment systems uh, are doing things that help. Having said that, relatively new things in sort of evolutionary timescale like virtual cards. 
I'm not sure how many people know about that. I'm mean, just thinking about my family. I, mean, I don't know whether Bridget knows about virtual cars. And funny enough, I can't think I've ever spoke about it. And one of my daughters might know, the other one might not know. And my parents certainly would not know, even though they buy stuff online. So the landscape is, is changing so fast. Anyway, putting that one to, to, to one side and moving on to the field that you're working in, as you say, merely, presumably a few years ago, uh, you were finding that actually there wasn't much out there that was very good. So if we go back to when you're crypto exchanging, what were the main deficiencies of the products available? I don't know what it was, say for sake of argument, five to ten years ago. What wasn't there in the marketplace? That you thought, well, the market doesn't provide this, or it's just not bloody good enough. It gets one out of ten frauds or, or whatever. What were the actual pain points that you, were, you and your co-founder had? So we were a small, medium business back then, or I'd categorize ourselves that way. And all these providers out there, they were aiming to sell to large enterprise customers. And so in order to get our look and feel of their product, we would have had to sit through multiple discovery and sales calls. They had really complex pricing structures with integration costs, support fees and whatnot. And in certain cases, they, they were lacking the feature set that we would have needed. So the main issue was that the, the category of a buyer that we would have been, they were clearly not tailored to serve us. And, you know, if you're, a, if you're a large, you're a massive bank or you're a massive fintech solution or a massive payment gateway, then yeah, maybe that's, uh, that's the way to buy. And, and you, can, you have time to, you know, dig deep into the solution. You have the affordability to pay those costs, but we didn't. And I think the majority of online businesses actually don't. Uh, they're lacking that, uh, that set. Hence the reason why our ethos is to say, we're going to be putting our product first. If you go on our website, you can find our pricing in a very transparent manner. It's a pay-as-you-go model. We're not going to be locking you into multi-year contracts. You can cancel with a 30 days notice. You can actually try out the product for yourself. So if you don't even want to get in touch with our sales team and our customer success team, you can just onboard yourself. We're putting our API documentation out there for the public to read. So if you're a developer sitting at 2 a.m. in the middle of the night trying to solve this headache of, you know, you've been dealing uh, at your online marketplace with fraud, then you can pretty much try it out, integrate it and go live within an hour or 30 minutes or so, however fast you can uh, integrate it. So I think the, the approach in itself is very different than how people were used to, to selling in this industry. And if you think about it, you know, today's consumers, everybody wants to buy as fast as you can, uh, take a look at the product as fast as you can. You want to try it out before you commit so I think this is the way to pretty much buy and sell in the 21st century. Yeah, so if I could summarize that and, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's really a question of the whole um, anti-fraud process being made more digital. So for example, if you go back to last century, most buying processes and most selling processes, as you say, were geared up to go between two vast bureaucracies called big businesses and they both had vast bureaucracies of procurement and purchasing and blah 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 and they would take months because there was no particular competitive pressure in these sort of oligopolies which are only reinforced by uh, regulation uh, and the likes of that and the quote sales department or whatever may not have had much of an interface with the product department anyway and they certainly had no incentive to make the sort of sales sales process a no-brainer and shut themselves down and, and and replace themselves by something and life went on because that's how it 
worked. But if that's kind of capital B to capital B, then what we're living in a world now is where there are lots of small Bs. I mean, you're 170, but you're still a small B. You're, you're, you know, you're not as vast as a Visa or MasterCard or something like that. And you're selling to small Bs. And one of the main things, small B to small B, rather than big B to big B, uh, and one of the main things that you say about the whole digital transformation is that increasingly it's about making things more and more frictionless for everyone's benefit. So if you're selling to a small B, even if you become a big B, and you make your process take bloody months to onboard and do all this stuff and check and test and yada, 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 uh, you won't succeed. So these days, yes, it's about removing friction in the journey. So in terms of looking at it from the merchant's perspective, rather than the gaps you saw in the market and, and what needed to be changed into modern, technology. What are the main challenges that merchants, and that's a very wide group of people, I mean, do, can we define that first? Do you literally mean all businesses on the internet for the sake of argument, or do you mean some, some segments of them? What practical challenges um, do they face? And, and what are the opportunities for businesses if they buy a sort of sexy, hot 21st century solution such as yours or, or, or your competitors? Yeah, putting it into context for the listeners to also understand, you know, what we're focused on doing is basically any online point of authentication, be it a login, a registration, a payment, deposit or withdrawal, where you have to submit some of your details, like during a registration process, that would be an email address, a phone number, your name. You're probably accessing that form with a device, uh, with an IP address associated to that device. Then at that point, when you press submit, our solution in a, in a split second comes back with a score, a risk assessment, and pretty much verifies whether we should let this customer register or we shouldn't let them register based on all of that data that we had just looked up on your email address, on your phone number, on your IP address. So we would reach out to open and social sources and try to gather a, a wider ranging risk profile just based on your, your social footprint, based on whether you're using a proxy or a VPN to access the website, based on whether you know, you're using a, a Mac OS or Windows or Ubuntu. So a bunch of data points collected, and then we make a decision based on that. And so customers like Revolut, uh, for example, they would use us during that onboarding process in order to make sure that you are actually who you're portraying yourself to be. And on top of ID verification, like I mentioned, there's great risk stacks out there. You know, you can rely on many forms of identifying a user like ID verification, like two-factor authentication. And then what we do is this digital footprint analysis and data enrichment based on that. It's a totally frictionless um, one of these, you know, means of identifying the user. So the user doesn't, the consumer doesn't actually feel that we're monitoring them in the background. And in a split second, it does happen. Uh, it's, a, it's a relatively cheap way of identifying or, or pretty much collecting that risk information. Uh, and it's very frictionless. So it doesn't, it doesn't cause any, any friction in the process. The user doesn't have to submit any additional data, like, for example, in means of ID verification. Interesting. And in the dessert course, you can let the listeners know a little bit about the kind of products that you, you've got out there, because at the moment, we're just generalizing into what you're doing in this area and uh, going back to the asymmetry actually and having started by mentioning that we're not particularly talking about you che checking that the Chateau Margot bottle on Amazon is a Chateau Margot which would be quite tricky anyway I thought but uh, it occurs to me that from the consumer side a lot of burden is placed on your payment 
provider. So if I buy something from a dodgy website, again, I'm really very unclear these days. If it's a credit card, give an example, we were just about to be skiing the next morning when uh, France shut its, shut its sort of uh, borders and everything a couple of years ago or, or, or whatever. Some of the things I paid for with, I don't know, app banks, some of the things I pay with my bank card and, and some with my MasterCard credit card, largely because sometimes, you know what it's like, you go to a website and for some reason it says, oh no, we don't take that or, or, or what's some nonsense like that. So I basically paid with kind of two main cards, bank cards uh, and credit cards, but within the bank cards, um, uh, app banks and non-app banks. And to put it mildly, there was an extremely uneven process of getting my money back from the various bits and bobs that we purchased from. The credit card was no problem, as we talked before, whole credit card has this whole sort of system inside it, and part of which is that they've got insurance and all that. So that was quite good. I think, to my surprise, I think to my surprise that my bank account may have actually been really useful, which I didn't expect, and I think perhaps the app bank not. So again, looking at it from a consumer's perspective, just for a second, rather than the merchants, and obviously this may well vary between countries as well, going back to it's a hellishly complex landscape. If I'm in doubt, I will just use my credit card. But what are the layers of protection that banks give? I mean, in the UK, they've got all this, I don't know, now they have to identify that I am sending you money and not your co-founder by mistake because he's given me the wrong details or, or something like that. So, so I mean, it's probably a whole podcast in itself, but just as a sort of schematic overview. Yeah, if we look at the world of, uh, of payments, uh, more specifically, if we're looking at uh, card payments, then the chargeback process and, and the right for a consumer to file a chargeback is actually what covers them. In case of fraud or, or receiving goods and services that weren't living up to the quality that the consumer would have expected them to be. And it's not in all cases very well known that the consumer has this right. So again, uh, putting it out there, if you do face that you didn't receive the goods and services or you see or you received something not living up to the quality that you would have expected then you you do have the right of filing a chargeback for that specific transaction with your bank and you can let them know and and they will file it uh, via visa or mastercard and at the end of the day you should be protected as a consumer and you will receive those funds back to your account now you know if you, if you if you went into a store and you and you bought a I don't know a bottle of expensive whiskey or champagne and you went home and you called up the bank and said hey that wasn't me then that's considered friendly fraud uh, in reality and that is actually a specific type of fraud that can happen where it's very hard to verify whether uh, whether your card was stolen or somebody else was using it uh, obviously if you file friendly fraud multiple times then it's easy to identify. But, uh, but if, if you're an everyday shopper and, and you did that, it would be harder for the, for the bank to verify. They may ask for police uh, files and, and, you sh and the police report uh, because you should be reporting it to the police and that's a way of countering it. But that's a whole different topic. Now, if you're looking at uh, bank transfers, the classical bank transfers uh, where you log into your online banking application, you transfer money uh, to an external account, then generally speaking, I don't recall if there's any coverage for that because when you essentially nowadays the liability shift is on the consumer because you have to use you know your your mobile device to log into the online banking application when you're sending the transfer you actually have to again submit means of two-factor authentication and just a couple of years back in Hungary there was a massive scandal where they created an application in the in the Google App Store which was an exact replica of the online banking application 
that was uh, the legit one. And when you would log in through that application and you would receive the SMS code and you entered it, in the background, these hackers had built a bot network that would actually log into your bank account and it would access your funds and it would sift it out. I think it was to an Indonesian or, or some Asian, uh, Asian bank account. And what happened was I actually have a, a close acquaintance whose grandfather was a victim of the scandal and all his savings were funneled out of his account. And the family actually didn't tell him what had happened because they were scared of the shock that he would be in, you know, that, uh, that this happened. So, yeah, this is an issue and, uh, and banks should be, you know, they should be aware of these phishing attacks, so-called phishing attacks, because, yeah, in that case, the liability is on the consumer. Nothing covers in case of bank transfers. So this poor grandfather, did his family get the money back or not? No, uh, the money, the, the, the coverage wasn't there. So I think the bank covered for a certain percentage of the amount, but that was negligible. So in this case, it was, uh, it was solely on the consumer. I mean, it does raise a, a big issue there for all of us, which is, <laughs> should we ever have um, all of our money in, in, in one bank account and matters, and matters like that? Because although it's very easy to say, oh, they picked up a wrong app or something, you know, what tends to happen, including in nuclear power plants like Fukushima, is that when people are in a hurry, they cut corners, you know. Off the top of my head in Fukushima, these guys were trying to get home on a Friday and there was a bucket of, about say shit, like a bucket of presumably uranium or whatever, and they stirred it with a stick, which turned out to be a bad idea. But they, they did that because in a hurry. And equally, you know, you and I, if we've got a whole afternoon to update our app or something, we might be very careful. But if we're doing it running between meetings and it won't work. So the whole world of complexity itself. So it's all very complex. I, I can see why you're growing fast if you do what you say you do very easily and effectively in terms of purchasing process, but also in terms of execution and stuff like that. Very briefly, um, although I think I probably know it, what does the future hold? I mean, the... <laughs> In terms of me probably knowing it, my assumption is it holds a continued arms race and you continue to need to upgrade your stuff and in 10 years' time your product suite will be different and or got different engines in or run on hydrogen power or whatever phase shifts along the way than it is now. I mean, is it literally the case that you've made the purchasing process easier, uh, you're doing what you're doing very effectively for the companies who are buying from you and in 10 years' time if you're back on the podcast when you're sort of biggest company in the world and you're globally IPO'd everywhere at the same time. They'll simply have a million devs and a million researchers working out the latest sort of anti-arms race thing. As of today, we are already very industry agnostic and, uh, and that's been part of our journey from day one. You know, putting our product first and widening that top funnel allows us to onboard new use cases, you know, on a, on, a, on a daily, weekly, monthly basis with a bit of exaggeration. And so we're seeing customers using our tool for onboarding uh, security, for payment, you know, security. We're, we're seeing multiple use cases and I'm very happy about that. Uh, now, in terms of the future, it's been an amazing journey. Like I mentioned, we last year at this time, we were 50 employees. Now we're 170 and we we're on massive mission we want to be in five years time, we want to be the number one fraud prevention company out there. We also have new product launches coming in the next 12 months. And we're, we're not only doubling down on this consumer uh, protection side of things, but we are also seeing a new use case where it's increasingly harder and harder for companies to verify online businesses. I mean, online, online business accounts, right? So if I were to register for a Revolut account. And I can also open up a business account there. I can, I can register 
bank accounts online nowadays as, as a business. And there's multiple parts. As we're moving more digital, there's multiple aspects of where a business has to verify, verify themselves online. And we're working towards building tools, which is the next generation of fraud prevention, in order to not only be able to do what we do on consumers today, but be able to do that and replicate that for, on, for businesses, pretty much, and be able to collect as much information during that verification process as much as we can. And, um, and that's our uh, mission moving forward and doubling down in, all, in terms of always staying ahead of, ahead of the curve is pretty much building new products, innovating and dictating what's next in fraud prevention. Excellent. Right. I don't think you're going to get too bored in the next few years one way and another or have nothing to do on Fridays because you did it all Monday to Thursday. So before we wrap up the show, I'd like to thank all you listeners out there. I hope some of these stories have made you think a little bit more about uh, what not just you do, because I assume that you're more savvy than the average member of your family, but the rest of your family and, and folks and, and friends do. I, for one, now will only use my credit card to go on a holiday because even though there are all these mechanisms in principle, it's the same as there's lots of insurance companies out there. But you, you know, if someone crashes into your car, you will suddenly find that uh, insurance company A would have been rather better than insurance company B who's putting you through a nightmare for 18 months. I'd also like to thank my brand partners for the podcast. Smart is transforming pensions and retirement worldwide. Their leading edge retirement tech platform propelled them to success in the UK. Now they're operating on four continents and working with partners like Zurich and JP Morgan. Find out more at www.smart.co. The listed board.com, your guide to entrepreneurial governance and how you can start making your board an engine of growth today. And the most recent blog of that in passing was on DAOs, Distributed Autonomous Organisations, which plenty of people have pestered me to write something about, so I wrote something about it. And, uh, and then finally, as it's Q1 again, I shall do my, what's now standard, shout out to listeners, which is that if any of you need any founder mentoring out there, or indeed career mentoring or FS mentoring or anything, or basically you want half an hour chat with me for free, then the first six listeners to uh, contact me via clarity.fm slash Mike Balliman, one L in that. I should be happy to talk to and try and help. And uh, I had the number six because last year it was unlimited and it ended up being 14. <laughs> Which is great. When I, when I go to the pearly gates, um, I'll be able to say I did, did one decent thing in my life. So, Vince, you mentioned Sion once or twice uh, and what you do. Uh, maybe you want to be a, a slightly more specific uh, in terms of, you know, your solutions. Did you, are there a sort of bunch of APIs and are they aimed at sort of devs or, you know, what you're selling to whom? And then you mentioned where you're, you're going in terms of progress, but uh, uh, what you'd like more of to make you even bigger and better than you are today. What we're selling today is a mix of two core products. And on the one hand, we offer an end-to-end fraud prevention solution where it's an API integration and has a graphical user interface. And we receive, let's say there's a, there's a payment, we receive all the relevant information um, around the user and the payment information. Next step in the process is we enrich the data. Third step in the process is we trigger various rules in our system. And lastly, we classify the transaction to be fraudulent or not. Um, now, out of this four-step process, the second step, which is data enrichment, is solved on its own as well. And we have a fair share of customers solely relying on that aspect uh, of our product. Basically, if you have your already existing fraud prevention models built in-house or sourced externally, uh, and you, you're just looking to make better decisions, then you can push information via a set of APIs push more information into your already existing model. And if, if you don't want to source that end-to-end fraud product of ours, which we call the Sense platform uh, today, then you can just rely on our intelligence tool, 
which is uh, data enrichment on its own. And we are actually uh, moving towards sort of unifying these products from a sales perspective, but that's another story. And in terms of making Sion bigger and better than it is today, uh, you know, do you need more sex, drugs, rock and roll partners in Bolivia? Or what are you after to be bigger and better? I think the, the names that we've managed to onboard over the past 12 months, like Revolut, TransferWise, now Wise, Molly, uh, they speak for themselves. And luckily enough, when, when, we, when we're talking to potential new clients in our pipeline, you know, these amazing names to drop, it, it speaks for themselves. Uh, and maybe four years ago, during a, an RFP, a due diligence process, we had to dig really deep into explaining how we do everything from a technological perspective. Nowadays, I think uh, the clients that we work with, like I said, it, it speaks for, for itself and I'm really proud to have them in our portfolio of companies that we're supporting. So looking over the next 12 months, what it's going to be about, I think it's going to be about a bunch of growth. We're probably going to be expanding with another odd uh, 150 employees or so. And that's going to be a crazy amount of scaling to do. Long nights, uh, late, late night emails uh, being sent out from my end. But that's just the way it is, right? So we're in build mode and, um, and we have to push, you know, uh, we have to do our best to get there. Excellent. Well, that's been a very comprehensive and clear coverage. I can see why you've got the momentum that you have. And you mentioned devs once or twice. If you're a dev and you're anywhere near this area, uh, you certainly should go and check out Sion for yourself and make your own decision whether to shortlist them. And in terms of people working in this industry, presumably if you're in Austin, London, <laughs> Budapest or Jakarta, you should also check out the Sion job board. And I wish you every success in the future, Bent, in achieving your goal of becoming the world's greatest fraud company. It certainly doesn't lack ambition. So it's quite a high target to aim for, but you never achieve high targets or even for sake of argument come second or third. If you don't aim at them, if you aim to be just a, a another player in the modern world, well, you're, you're sort of aiming for uh, failure, really. So thank you for that, Bent, and I wish you every success in the future. Thank you so much for having me. Thank the listeners for joining in. And I hope I had some interesting information to, to convey. It was, uh, it was a pleasure talking to you, Mike, and thank you for hosting. Thanks for listening. If you're in need of a non-executive or advisory director with deep expertise, experience, and contacts in the worlds of both traditional FS and fintech, or unique insight into how to make your board an engine of growth today, contact me at mike at mikeballiman.com. If you just need one-off advice in these areas via clarity.fm slash mikeballiman. We could sit in a vendor all day Watching the firelight dance Watching the firelight dance We could walk in the mountains before dawn Watching a happy moon ride, watching a happy moon ride. To come away from the city, but with the tarmac so dead and the people so sad. Come away from the city But with the faces so gray With the pain of the
the mountains and the trees. Can you see what I mean? Can you see what I mean? We fade in between the earth and the sky. Kiss the city goodbye. Wave the city goodbye. Wave the city goodbye. Watch the firelight dance with me. 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 Watch the firelight.